2: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
3: Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you here on Saturday morning, as always. And so I want to begin with, um, <clears throat> with the crime story, the New York crime story. President Biden was here uh, Thursday, right? Thursday he was here. And really delivered his expected empty message on crime. There's nothing going on with uh, his appearance. I mean, it's the usual stuff. Blame guns. More social spending. Blah, blah, blah. And it's too bad, but I don't didn't expect anything more than that. You know, it is a pity... And it wasn't always so, but it is a pity that, um, you know, Biden and the Democratic Party is basically the party that's anti-cop. I mean, let's face it, it's an anti-cop party. You know, his empty message this week, gun control, social spending, and he will not He will not deal with the fundamental issue. Well, let me say two fundamental issues. Number one, maybe not every Democrat in the country. I don't want to make that kind of blanket assertion. But Mr. Biden and his vice president and most of the party and their spokespeople demonize law enforcement and demonize cops. Blame cops, not criminals. I mean, here in New York, we have this no bail, no jail approach to law enforcement. We have this crazy Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg, downgrading armed robberies, downgrading assaulted cops, downgrading drug dealing, downgrading people who are hopping over the subway turnstiles, downgrading criminal recidivism, no bail, no jail, it's the worst It's the worst in the country right now, the worst in the country. This memo that uh, he put out, that Bragg put out, uh, now he's trying somehow to slightly retreat, backing down on a couple of policies regarding commercial robberies uh, committed with knives and guns will once again be prosecuted as felonies. Okay, that's a... We shouldn't have had it in the first place. His whole memo should be shredded and burned. It's a soft on crime memo. It should be completely reversed, should be completely scrubbed, should be completely shredded. But he won't. He won't do it. And he's um, not getting any help from President Biden. And that's the long and short of it. And, you know, I go back to the... Brilliant memo, brilliant op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal written by my old friend Heather McDonald. You know, Biden has really contributed to this demonization of law enforcement, demonization of cops. And I'll say, you know, stuff that that Heather talked about Earlier last year, April 12th last year, when the president tweeted about the need to address the, quote, the trauma that black America experiences every day from police shootings. And later on last year, October 16th, during the National Peace Officers memorial service in Washington, Biden laments that the promise of equal and impartial justice was denied in too many communities, black and brown. Too many families are grieving unnecessary losses of their sons, their daughters, their fathers, their brothers, from police violence. Okay? I mean, that stuff is part of the problem. And the crime wave across the country is... in many ways, in large measure, because you have a president, and as I say, a vice president, Kamala Harris has done the same thing, uh, who just will not back the cops. They will not back the cops. And, you know, it would be so easy if politicians would just listen to what the Police are saying, instead of demonizing them, instead of opposing them, listen to what they say. Give them backing. Cover their backs. You know, I I just can't get out of my mind the picture of thousands of police in the two funerals. Mora, young detective Mora, young detective Rivera. The two funerals. I mean, actually, the one for Mora this week was even a longer blue line. I'm told, stretching from St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is, what, 50th and 5th, all the way down to 35th Street and 5th, even longer. And the fact that not only the New York cops, but also cops from all over the country came to show their support. And the message is just, you know, really enough is enough. Give us support. Give us your help. Listen to what we're trying to say and do. And I think uh, until we get clarity on that, we're still going to have a problem here. And it's a big problem. And I've said also that the business of crime, you know, which affects our neighborhoods and our families and our schools and our businesses, this business of, of the crime outbreak is it's not only a security issue and a safety issue, it becomes an economic issue. I mean, I, in some sense, the metaphor here is you know, high crime rates are like a tax hike. Uh, on business. And this is something that Rudy Giuliani knew full well when he turned things around in the early and mid 90s and it's something that uh, Mike Bloomberg also knew full well. You're not going to get a you're not going to get a comeback in the New York economy. People are not going to come back to work. They're not going to go back into the office buildings. They're not going to start new businesses. If they fear crime, I mean, look, they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to go to Florida. They're going to go down to North Carolina. They're going to go to Georgia. They're going to go out west to places with thriving economies, Utah, the Dakotas, Colorado. I mean, the tax burden is enormous in New York. The education system is highly, highly flawed in New York. But the issue of crime is dragging us down. And we, we are in a make-or-break situation. We are in a make-or-break situation. And I say this out of sadness. As a longtime New Yorker, I don't think I've ever seen it worse. I've lived here since the early 1970s. 1973 is when I came here. So, you know, my point is, Biden comes and goes, but nothing really changes The governor won't take Bragg on. Even the mayor won't take Bragg on. That's the way I heard it. The mayor praised Bragg. Uh, He didn't have to do that. He could have ignored him, and that would have sent an important message. So somebody's either got to get Bragg to completely get rid of that memo he wrote, which downgraded everything. We've got to keep recidivists off the streets. We're going to have to sweep the homeless off the streets, the the big cities across the country, the big blue cities run by Democratic mayors. I hate to make this a partisan issue, to be honest with you. I really do. But it just seems to me, it just seems to me that has become a partisan issue. And the Democratic Party is the party against cops. And that's got to change. This is a Democratic city. Now, it's a democratic state, but it may not be a democratic state because my feeling is, my suspicion is, come November, in the gubernatorial election, you're going to see a change. And crime is going to be at the heart of that change. Taxes will be at the heart of that. Schooling and vouchers and choice will be at the heart of that. Mandates will be at the heart of that. I had a great lunch this past week with Lee Zeldin, a smart, smart fellow who's running for governor on the Republican line. He's going to be contested, and he's got to prove himself in the primary. But I think he understands full well uh, what's at stake. We will have Andrew Giuliani, the former mayor's son, will be on the show later to talk some more about this whole issue. But I lead with this issue. I lead with it. Uh, It's a sad thing. It's a tragic thing terrible death of these two young detectives but people have just got to listen to what the cops are trying to say back up what the cops are trying to do stop this crazy left-wing woke progressive idea that the issue is not the victims but we have to protect the criminals this has all got to stop and it's a break a make or break moment for the city of new york and i tell you what folks We're a New York radio station. We broadcast all across the country, though, either live streaming or syndication. This is a national issue. This is not just here in the city of New York or the state of New York. This is a national issue. And it has got to stop. We have got to put our foot down, and we have got to have changes. And if the politicians won't do it, we're just going to have to replace the politicians. Earlier in the week, the... Biden administration put out this uh, kind of warning and said, well, because of Omicron, jobs may tank in the January report, which came out yesterday, and said they may fall. Jobs may fall. Well, it turns out it was a blowout number. Not only did they not fall, jobs rose significantly, 467,000. It's a good report, Non-farm payrolls. So I don't know what the uh, Biden people were up to or who they were listening to. Uh, there were rumors that Mark Andy, who's kind of the Biden economist at Moody's, always making stuff up. His forecasts are always wrong. Maybe he said to him, it looks like jobs will fall. But they couldn't even get that right. And the point is, we are in an inflationary boom is what I'm going to call it. We'll have Art Laffer on uh, in a couple of minutes to talk some more about this, the great Art Laffer, the founder of Supply Side Economics. And not only was the month up, but the prior months were revised much higher, 709,000 jobs uh, revised up in uh, November, December. So really... Not only was it up uh, in January, but it was up 1.17 million from the uh, level first reported last December. That's a big gain, big big gain. Uh, wages also were up significantly. Uh, hourly earnings up seven tenths. They're up 6.9 percent at annual rate in the last three months. Now hours worked did drop three tenths of one percent. That may have been an Omicron impact, but uh, people uh, may have worked less, but they didn't seem to lose their pay. So you stay at home. You might have tested positive or you have people working at home, but it's not a job loss because they were still getting paid, or most of them anyway. So consumers are in pretty good shape here, and uh, total wages, hours worked, Times earnings up eight and a half, eight point four percent 8.4% in the annual rate. And for the last 12 months, up 94 Look, you have to understand, you've had this unprecedented federal stimulus, way too much, emergency stimulus lasting way too long. So you had the $1.9 trillion relief bill last March, April. And on top of that, The Federal Reserve, which really is the gatekeeper to inflation, as Milton Friedman taught us 50, 60 more years ago, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So you have the federal government spending all this money, $2 trillion and then another trillion dollars for the so-called infrastructure package, which wasn't really an infrastructure package. It was mostly just a spending package for the Green New Deal. But point is, the Fed is still pumping money. I mean, the money supply has grown by 40% over the past two years. In just the past 12 months alone, despite the economy rising, the money supply is up nearly 15%. That is the cause of the inflation. So you're running 7% inflation and in the fourth quarter, about 7% growth. That's 14% nominal GDP. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but the inflation is going to continue. That's why the wages are going up. And I want to make this point. I'm not blaming working folks for demanding higher wages. The labor market is strong and tight. Working people have a lot of power now in the labor markets to negotiate higher wages. But you're also moving towards a wage price spiral. And the cause of that is the federal spending and the Federal Reserve. And it's going to be very difficult to stop. Very difficult to stop. That's really a key point. The Fed's going to have to take the punch bowl away, and they're going to have to take money out of the economy. Now, we saved America and we killed the bill. The so-called Build Back Better bill is dead, thanks to Joe Manchin and and a lot of folks, including yours truly. No more spending. And the other point I want to make is the best thing we could do is to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. Steve Moore and I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, or the day before. That would increase the production of goods, so if inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, you could at least produce more goods and then cut back on on the too much money. That's what we're going to have to do. So we'll take a quick break again and come back on the other side with the great art Laffer and talk some more about this inflationary boom and how this thing's going to end.
4: This is the Larry Kudlow show.
3: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, come join us on Fox Business, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m., every day. Fox Business, great show, lots of fun. Now, great pleasure, we bring back my dear friend, Dr. Arthur Laffer, chairman and chief economist of Laffer Associates and um, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, which is a great honor. One of these days, they're going to give him a Nobel Prize, which he deserves. Arthur, good morning. Thank you for... Good morning, Larry. How sounding? are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so, actually, let me just focus. Uh, we, you and I talked about the jobs last night on the TV show and so forth. Yep. Uh, and it was a much bigger number and so forth. But I think, I think the issue here is inflation and um, too much money chasing too few goods and federal spending is skyrocketing and the federal reserve keeps increasing bank reserves and the money supply and so i'm just thinking you know where's how's this end <laughs> that's the thing because you're running seven percent inflation and art tell us your wisdom on this you think in inflation i mean and janet yellen said the inflation at the end of this year is going to be at two percent do you believe
1: that no, I really don't, Larry. I, I don't believe she's right. I think she's saying a political statement. But that that's different from saying I know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be at the end of this year, Larry. I really don't. But I don't think she does. And I think 2% is very unlikely. I think it will be a lot higher than that. Just my guess, you know. But there's no sign yet that inflation is even stabilizing, let alone falling. So when you've got this building up of inflation, which reminds me a lot of the 70s, uh, you know, I don't see the end until these there's a policy change that would cause it to stop. Like, as you say, the Fed stopping buying government bonds, in fact, letting the, the bonds roll off their balance sheet. You know, it, you've got these deficits coming. You know, deficits do stimulate the economy in the quarter it occurs, but then they hurt the economy going out. So a big deficit this month increases demand and supply, but then it worsens demand and supply going forward until we get 100% crowding out, which means we build in a lot of problems over the next year, I believe, that will lead to a lot higher inflation. Talk some more,
3: Art, on this, the deficits and the crowding out and the role of the Federal Reserve.
1: Yeah, well, let me start on the, on the deficits and crowding out. In the quarter in which government increases spending, that's a shock and people spend more, they supply more, there's a, a, an increase in GDP. In fact, the Point estimates are that a dollar increase in government spending will increase GDP by one dollar. No multiplier effect there, but one dollar. But then in the next quarter and the quarters following that, for the next three quarters, real GDP will fall by the amount of total one dollar. So there's no change in GDP. So what the boom in this quarter is offset by the declines in the next three quarters. And we have had huge increases in government spending, Larry. And those have led to a, a higher GDPs than we would have expected. But now they're in the stage of, of really reducing GDPs going forward. So I am worried about a slowdown in the economy. I think the first quarter GDP may, may well be a growth of less than 2%. It might be. Mm-hmm. And then going forward, it'll even be worse. And that will be a restriction of the supply of goods, as you say. And the Fed has done nothing yet to stop buying bonds. They may have slowed down their purchases, but they're still pumping liquidity in. And those two together lead to the perfect, perfect uh, situation to encourage inflation. And and that's where we are. It's like a perfect storm. So, right. So you're going to have slower and slower growth. And and the 1970s is the answer. We're going to have a 1970s type of situation unless there's a big change in policy.
3: Now. A big change in policy would be stop the spending, right? Yep. And stop the money, uh, stop the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. and, yeah, I and I'd go one step supply. further.
1: I'd go one step further. I read this uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal two days ago about uh, making Trump's tax cuts uh, permanent. <laughs> uh, that would encourage supply. I, Who wrote I that? also would, uh, would think very seriously about having a uh, payroll tax cut of substantial proportions to bring back those people back into the labor force who have decided because of their stimulus spending not to work. You know, anything we can do to encourage, encourage supply would be wonderful.
3: So, right. So, Steve and I wrote the editorial. Yep. But you did. You you ghost wrote it. I mean, we're just we're just saying stuff that you taught us and we've all had this view the Trump tax cuts. So, if you if you made them permanent Businesses would be a lot more confident. You know, we're not getting the kind of business investment spending we need for equipment and technology. And uh, the immediate expensing is going to start running off next year. So uh, that's a, we need to produce enough incentives for more uh, more production of goods and services. So that would help on the inflation side. But I don't see, you know, my problem with the Fed is, you know, look who's going to the Fed. You've got all these woke Fed people.
1: I know. It's, it's crazy.
3: Climate change, and slavery reparations and stuff like that. So really, I mean,
1: what are we going to do? What's, what's, what, what is to be done? Well, you know, first place, we've got to be patient because there's nothing else that can be done, to be honest with you. Uh, there's nothing that can be done in the next year. Uh, that is positive in this system. You've done the one thing, Larry. You did. You and Steve Moore did. You 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 stopped the bill, and you saved America. You stopped us from having a lot more damage. But now we have to wait until the midterm elections. The midterm elections will tell us what the country really wants. Do they? Will they give us a, a Republican House and maybe a Republican Senate? If that happens, that will start the process changing. Then you've got two more years. A Biden presidency, and then you'll see what happens in 2024. Then it takes another year after that to get legislation in place and passed. So we've got a, at, least a, at least a four-year horizon before we can really reverse things. And, and uh, we just have to be patient and plan it and do it correctly. I mean, make sure we don't make big legislative mistakes once we're in there. A low-rate, broad-based flat tax, spending mm. restraint, sound mm. money. Free trade, minimal regulations. If we get into that framework, Larry, we can recreate a boom that will make Reagan's look small. And, you know, I think the next president of the United States is going to be the biggest hero of all time. Because, and, uh, you know, it took Jimmy Carter to create Ronald Reagan, honestly. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine a great president who's going to be created by Joe Biden? It's going to be spectacular. He yeah, has a fabulous opportunity. That's a great It point. is
3: fabulous. You know, that's a great point. All right. You know, you're talking about uh, cut regulations, cut taxes, cut spending. We need to be competitive internationally on the trade front. They've got this crazy bill, $350 billion of spending, allegedly to be more competitive with China. There's got to be a better way. I mean, I've looked at this bill. You know, it's more money here, more money there. What should we do on the international trade front?
1: Cut tariffs. Yep. Cut tariffs, cut quotas, open up our borders. You know, bottom line, Larry, China is going to be here 50 years from now. We're going to be here 50 years from now. The hate China model. Hate China. Now, not the Chinese military. But, you know, China, without China, there is no Walmart. And without Walmart, there is no middle class or lower class prosperity. We need to learn to live with China to get them to agree to stop the military adventurism, but not use trade to try to really halt their military. I mean this is something where we need to work with China in the long run to create the prosperity we need. my view of the world But they need to open up to us too of course no it's got to be bi bipart- I mean it's got to be bisidal. Uh, They've got to open up to us, and we've got to open up to them. That's true. And we have opened up to them, and they have opened up to us, by the way. They produce a lot of the products we use and stuff, and our investments are in there. A lot of American-owned companies are partially American-owned. So they have opened somewhat to us, and we have opened a lot to them. And it's really that trade has been spectacular for both countries. You know, the military issues are really serious, but they're not – to be handled by by economic policies. I, mm. I find these boycotts and these things like that really not in our interest in the world com- community at all. If you're going to have Olympics, go to them. If not, don't. But don't use them as a political weapon every four years. It just doesn't make sense to me, Larry.
3: You know, inside, we had this debate inside the Trump administration about spending a lot of money to subsidize semiconductors, art. Semiconductors, which, yeah. you know, ch- chips are, they are part chips. Heart of the economy. Um, so a lot of the big shots were in favor of a 15 or 20 billion dollar subsidy to various chip companies uh, in some sense to have them expand production here or to bring them from overseas like, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor, which they are coming to the United States. But there were two people that opposed the subsidies one of one of them was me but the other one a little more important was the president now are they're going to have a 50 billion dollar subsidy in the last yeah. minute is that
1: 50 billion dollar subsidy to chip companies going to solve our problem yeah you and the president were exactly correct on that and doubling the policies that you disliked uh, does not make it likable Uh, This is a bad bill. It's a bad situation. And I wish we wouldn't do it. Just get out of the way and let businesses handle their stuff. If there are strategic materials, for example, I would not suggest trading nuclear weapons with North Korea. That's just out of the picture. Obviously, there are lots of things you want to restrict the sales of and you want to have inventories of that are strategic to the U.S. uh, economy. But other than that, Larry, we want to have free trade. And let the chips fall where they may. And no pun on chips no there. No pun intended. Yeah. No they- <laughs> intended. But that's what you and the president were doing, exactly the right thing. And thank God there were a couple in your administration, if you remember, who were not so free trade as you and the president. Right. Like, and well,
3: yeah. I think low taxes and regulations makes us more competitive, you
1: know? Really does. And that's the only way to go to make us more competitive. Right. Using, using the budget to make us more competitive is stupid in the extreme. All right, my friend. Well done. Well said. Uh, have a great weekend. Thanks for and helping You too, out Larry. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
3: All right, folks. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. You heard the great Art laugher. A lot of wisdom there. A lot of wisdom there. We're going to take a quick break, and then General Jack Keane is going to try to – she met with Putin, and they issued a statement that sounded very ominous for the United States. We will discuss it with General Jack Keane on the other side of the break. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We welcome back General Jack Keane, retired four-star general chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. And he's also Fox News senior strategic analyst and also Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Keene, uh, good morning, sir. Thank you for doing this.
2: Uh, good morning, Larry. Always great to be here with you and your audience.
3: Listen, General, I want to ask you about this meeting between uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. And I'm just going to read a bit from the Wall Street Journal news story. Uh, in a break with indirect pronouncements of past summits, their statement criticized the U.S. by name six times, taking issue with its alliances with Australia and others in Asia and its arms control and other policies It also opposed any expansion by NATO, uh, which was essential demand, of course, so, what are they cooking up? Um, it sounds more hostile than usual, General Keene. What's it mean, do you think?
2: Well, it is a it's a growing and developing relationship and partnership. You know, despite the historical and cultural differences that you know that they've had had in the past, and it and it grows out of what we're seeing in the. In their joint statement, I mean, this is about countering the United States and its global leadership role that it, that it still enjoys, uh, even though President Xi believes the United States is a declining power and and China is a rising power. But it, we do have this preeminent leadership role, and in their regions, we have associations and and alliances with partners in the region who are largely. Uh, democratic regimes, and these are two very authoritarian regimes who believe in repression at home and and certainly aggression abroad as well and they're trying to change the balance of power and and the international order as we know it because they don 't believe it's in their national interest, and they want to develop their own sphere of influences uh, much as the United States and Western democracies have enjoyed you know since the end of end of World War two. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge power play, and they see it in their national interest, uh, certainly, to do this, to counter the United States uh, and, and its allies. And and certainly, this is the first leader that President Xi has has met with uh, since COVID. I mean, you know, he shut himself down uh, completely. Uh, he's one of the only uh, major leaders in the world who's, who's refused to travel into, internationally. So actually, even meeting in the same room uh, with Putin uh, was quite a concession, but it's certainly in his interest. You know, given the prominence and propaganda that is coming from the Beijing Olympics and, and Putin's willingness to go there and be, be a part of all of that, uh, certainly President Xi has taken advantage of it. But this is this is a relationship that's growing. And Larry, it gives us concern. Mm. I, I mean, Xi has is the the most rapid-growing military in the world. They outgun us in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, as I've said many times. And one of the concerns that we have is the United States military today is is organized and manned to fight one major conflict, not two, mm. and hopefully deter another one. And if we had an incident going on uh, with Russia in Europe over the Baltics, uh, or Poland or something like that, when NATO was involved and Xi moved on Taiwan, uh, we would be hard-pressed to deal with both of those conflicts at, at the same time. So this is something that is of concern to us. Certainly the the only, not the only way to counter them, certainly, is with military. We'd have to deal with whole of government. But, yes, uh, a concerning development and something that uh, – Our government is watching very closely, and certainly the Department of Defense and our intelligence agencies are as well.
3: And she did not even throw a bone towards diplomacy as a means of settling the Ukrainian dispute. Now, maybe that's predictable, but some people wished he had.
2: Yeah. Well, I think he's he's doing everything he can uh, to support uh, Vladimir Putin. And, and his statements on Ukraine have become stronger in the last number of weeks. Uh, he had a much more neutral position initially. Mm. Uh, and I do think we're still in a diplomatic phase though dealing with Russia and Ukraine, not trying to change the subject, but I, I do think that phase is still there and, and will be at least for a few weeks, certainly during the Olympics, there wouldn't be any military movement and the grounds does start to fall in uh, in mid-march in ukraine it doesn't mean they can't conduct heavy armor operations in the mud they can but it's more just more more challenging but there is still um, a diplomatic effort taking place that russia actually acknowledges next week uh, uh french germans russia and ukraine will meet in something that's referred to as the normandy format this is uh, an organization that, that came together informally after the 2014 uh, military incursion into eastern uh, Ukraine, and they've met periodically since. This is Macron's initiative, you know, to play a much larger role, France does, and literally at the expense of the United States. You know, he believes that, that the EU uh, should not be that beholden to the United States and and being their leader and they should have enough initiative themselves to be able to reach out and make deals themselves. And that's, that's part of this, but it, it does have some potential.
3: I see or read some more references to a false flag operation by Russia in Kiev or someplace in Ukraine as an excuse for them to take action. What, what do you think of that?
2: Well, you gotta, first of all, it, it's, it's unusual for our intelligence services to provide that to a principal, in this case, I think the Department of Defense. And with the president's uh, permission, you know, they released the the uh, the results of that intelligence gathering. And, and, and so I, I applaud them for doing it, because we're we're exposing the fraud that uh, Putin is, is committing here. And I, I always felt we should have pinned the rose right from the beginning when he began to mass these troops in the springtime and then in the the fall of the year, that there's no provocation for that. There is nothing happening inside Ukraine that would require any of those troops to gather themselves on Ukraine's border. It Mm. has always been a big lie. Mm. And he used this false narrative to annex Crimea, and he used it again to enter into eastern Ukraine. So it's not surprising that they would try a third time this time uh, evidently so attempting to make a, a video with bringing in some actors and, and everything to give it additional validity to uh, to what has taken place. And, of course, what they're trying to create is a situation that the Ukrainians are initiating military action against the separatists and killing civilians uh, in the process, and they're going to use the term committing genocide to arouse the russian population that would support a military uh, invasion into ukraine to stabilize the the situation I and mean, that's that's the nonsense that this is about but you can't blame putin for doing it because he's used it twice before mm.
3: all right <laughs> we'll see what happens yeah i don't think Zelensky wants any of that stuff but we will see anyway general keen out of time thank you sir we appreciate it very very much folks we're going to take a quick break the other side of the break, we're going to talk about some of these crazy appointments to the Federal Reserve Board. They're not worried about inflation. They're worried about slavery reparations and climate change. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. Lots more to do this morning.
2: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
3: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. So we were talking earlier in the show with the great Art Laffer, about the tough job the Fed is going to have in uh, withdrawing excess money from the banking system in order to fight inflation. Well, uh, President Biden is uh, nominating uh, three new people to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. We had some Senate Banking Committee hearings this past week. Uh, to say his nom- nominees are are... Disappointing, as to put it mildly, we bring in Congressman Ralph Norman, who is from South Carolina. He's a ranking member of the House Oversight Committee's Environmental Subcommittee. Uh, Ralph Norman, welcome. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it very much.
5: Great. Great to be with you, Larry.
3: So continuing our conversation from the TV show, uh, I want to talk about uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, but I also want to talk about Lisa Cook. Let, let begin with Raskin. Raskin, all of her work is about climate change and lots of public statements about stopping bank loans to fossil fuel companies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This is unconventional, to say the least, with respect to the Federal Reserve. What's your thinking on this?
5: Well, as you look at her career, and I look back on her background since the interview with you uh, in French, you know, she graduated from Harvard in, in 80, 1986. She's had 36 years basically in just regulations. Uh, it's like, you know, a doctor that's never practiced. She has, she's been in making rules the whole time. And like you said, she's on record of saying that you shouldn't bank, shouldn't fund um, fossil fuels. And, you know, she's, it is and the, the dangerous part of what of nominating a person that has been such anti-fossil uh, fuels is the fact of when she's had a supervision she gets it's a lot of power, really more than the, the chairman because uh, you it's, it's basically bank regulations, capital rules, and particularly stress tests, and she can just rule credit out with regu- rule credit for oil and natural gas industry through regulations which she intends to do. Um, And I'm just sick and tired of hearing, you know, she's got qualifications, she's this and that. It's her, what she does with her qualifications is so damaging. And I I cannot believe that not more than 41 or 42 companies that have come out, industries that have come out against her, because I don't know where, you know, Lisa Cook is, and I think uh, Mr. Jefferson is the other one that is being put up, but... Um, she's as radical as you get. And what a critical time to have somebody with a level head on.
3: If you, here's the thing uh, this whole climate change crusade, now, if you stop the fossil fuel companies from producing, drilling, and investing. By denying them credit, which is what Raskin is going to try to do. As you say, stuff that we couldn't, uh, that Biden couldn't get in Build Back Better. They're going to try to get through regulations. So, um, Ralph, I don't, what's going to happen is we're going to have less energy at higher costs, which will become higher prices. In other words, she will be pursuing an inflationary policy because we don't have anything to replace fossil fuels. In other words, uh, I'm perfectly happy with wind and solar, but that's 5% of our energy and that's not going to change much in the next 30, 40, 50 years. So it just is bizarre to me whatever her social opinions are or climate opinions, what she's pursuing is going to cause higher inflation, not lower.
5: Yeah, and if she you know, she's in a box because uh, you know, if if they don't cut if they cut Rates too much, uh, you know. It, inflation soars if they cut it. If they cut it way too much, uh, the economy collapses. And so she doesn't have a clue, I don't think. And you're right. I mean, like it or not, uh, oil and natural gas run this country right now. I don't think I've seen a, an airplane fly with batteries. I don't think I will. I don't think uh, solar panels are going to go on buildings in New York anytime soon. But we've actually had hearings where that's what the left is is advocating for a complete retooling of passive solar. But no, it's, this is dangerous with her and, and her record. Now we don't have the votes to stop it other than if, if the people get involved in the industries, because it's scary what this lady, what, what she will do, particularly in her role as, as supervision with head of supervision.
3: I mean, the whole issue It's funny. Um, we've looked at this and, in- other experts on climate change, what is going to replace fossil fuels? In other words, there's no plan, Congressman. That's the issue. And we're going to have to have a major emphasis in mining commodities, which is going to be extremely expensive. And uh, once again, uh, no matter what the dream may be to replace fossil fuels, there is no plan that won't cost us a fortune and raise the inflation rate. This is well, what this, You know, what's your replacement plan? Well, they don't have one.
5: No, and I, you know, Larry, the, the 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 hearings I've sat through with them, they don't have a plan, and they really, when you say what is your backup, they don't know. I mean, again, um, they actually we actually went through a hearing where they wanted to re uh, re uh, put solar panels in buildings in New York, mm. and and when you ask who's paying for this, I mean, you you got. Buildings that have been built for years, you just don't go in and throw a solar panel on. Not to mention make it a primary source of, of, yeah. of heating and, and cooling. But now they, uh, it's it's a uh, it's something that ought to be. She shouldn't be confirmed, and particularly with her statements. And she's walked, tried to walk back some of her radical yeah. uh, statements in the past. But that's not going to do it because her her record proves what she's what she will do.
3: Let me look at this other nominee, Lisa Cook, who uh, teaches economics at Michigan State University. Uh, She has from her past statements called America systemically racist. She called President Trump a fascist. She said Trump's administration was genocidal, similar to the Holocaust. She also said uneducated people are the NASCAR folks. She criticized uneducated people she called NASCAR. And she also supported uh, bailing out the uh, rioters in the 2020 uh, race riots that we had. Now, I want to read you uh, John Cochran is a very distinguished Ph.D. economist from the University of Chicago. He's now at the Hoover Institute. Uh, He says in her he's talking about Cook. In her extensive writing for academic journals and think tank essays listed under her publications, you will find essentially nothing related to monetary policy, monetary effects on employment, interest rates, inflation, financial regulation, or other traditional Fed topics. So she has no qualifications for the job other than the fact that she's in favor of slavery, reparations, she thinks we're systemically racist and genocidal. I mean, that really takes the cake.
5: No, Not only does it take it takes the cake, they believe this. You know, like I, I knew I was on a bank board back in the early 2000s. I think Dodd-Frank came in in 2010. I thought that was radical. I mean, you're talking about hurting the economy where banks couldn't expand because of the asset limits. Uh, what this, what these people are saying, is it makes this look like child's play, and uh, regulations cost money. When you had banks that couldn't expand because you had to hire a whole team of uh, compliance officers, it's a problem. But, uh, but Raskin's is of the same ilk that uh, Lisa Cookie is. Uh, she may not say it, but uh, it's just in a different way. She is against uh, she her. Radical views of her and her husband. We get a double dose if she goes on the board because Jamie uh, is as radical as as she is.
3: Yeah, he's the big uh, impeached Trump guy. Is he on the January 6th committee, too? Uh, I think he is, yes. But he was the big impeached Trump guy, wasn't he?
5: Yeah, and they failed at every level. (laughs) (laughs) Where's their success rate? You measure success by what you fail. It's I, you know whether he drink. I know he drinks a Kool Aid of, uh, of anti-Trump, but they've they've got knocked down every time they've they tried it. And yeah. I think, uh, but you know, we've got to expose uh, the every just about every person this administration has put up has been unqualified. They've been had pipe dreams, and it's going to devastate the economy more than what it is. Yeah, Man. we're through some tough sledding on this stuff. All right, Congressman Ralph Norman,
3: South Carolina, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Keep up the great fight. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to return to the New York crime wave problem. We have um, gubernatorial candidate Andrew Giuliani, he's a friend of mine from the Trump White House. We're not talking about the nomination so much as we are the crime problem. So please stick with us right here. We'll be back right away. Howdy, folks. Larry Kudlow here. I'm going to return to the issue of crime. Crime is important. Crime is important because crime is important, and it's safety and security of everybody families, kids, schools, businesses. Crime is important because it's important to the economy, as uh, Rudy Giuliani taught us, I guess, about 30 some odd years ago. So we have some more discussion. Bring in my pal, Andrew Giuliani who is running for governor uh, of the state of New York in this election. He's a former associate director of the Office of Public Liaison in the Trump administration. He's a Newsmax TV contributor. He's a great pal of mine. Uh, I think, frankly, he's uh, already on the road to being smarter than his old man. So I thought I'd (laughs) bring him in and uh, have a little conversation. (laughs) Andrew Giuliani, how are you, my friend?
0: Well, Director, you know, you say a lot of truth. I don't know if that last part was truth, but I certainly appreciate that. Thank
3: you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've watched you grow, and, you know, you were terrific in the White House. Uh, look, I had lunch with Lee Elden. I'm not really here to talk politics. I, I'm really here to get your take. You know, it, it may be tragic, but um, the, the fundamental problem with Joe Biden is his demonization of law enforcement. That was Heather McDonald's phrase in her fabulous Wall Street Journal editorial this past week. And the reality is, I think, Andrew, Democrats around the country, certainly Biden, but Democrats around the country and in this state of New York, don't like cops. And I think that's a gigantic problem. And that problem needs to be fixed. One hundred
0: percent. And I would look at it this way. Right. When you look at the defund the police movement and specifically, and I know that it was amended yesterday, I would call it tweaked. But uh, when you look at the memo that Alvin Bragg sent out to his ADAs on just the third day of office, um, he was taking an approach that actually is the exact opposite of broken windows policing. Broken windows, as you highlighted before, uh, was the theory that became. Uh, That was put into practice in New York in the 90s that was able to take the murder and violent crime rate down 65 and 80 percent in five short years. And then eventually, over the course of a decade and a half, down 90 percent. He actually is taking the exact opposite approach of broken windows. I would say it's even worse than the opposite approach because he's saying that armed robbery and resisting arrest were also not going to prosecute as violent crime. So he's adding those in to nonviolent crimes. And guess what? We're getting the opposite results. We're seeing that we've seen over the last few years of de Blasio. Unfortunately, we're seeing it in the first month uh, of the new administration. We have to give him time to fix it. But but I also wonder uh, as well, Larry, if you have if a mayor who wants to fix the crime problem has a D.A. who's not going to prosecute criminals and then on top of them has a governor and a state, Senate and a state assembly that does not want to touch the bail reform laws. Uh, is there anybody else that's going to help in this quest?
3: That's the issue. Now, um, I think on on Bragg's list in that memo, he downgraded assaulting cops to a misdemeanor, not a felony. Misdemeanor assaulting cops, yeah. which Absolutely. to, to resisting me yeah, yeah, resisting arrest. So I'm reading. Um, Your dad was quoted in the Miranda Devine column in the New York Post. Miranda's terrific. And he basically said, look, the guy should be – he should have one chance to uh, completely reverse his memo. And failing that, he should be fired by the governor. And I just – you know, reading that did my heart good. Uh, as I said, I would have asked Rudy to come on, but I frankly would rather talk to you, even though I I do love Rudy. (laughs) I've known him for 40 years. But I mean, you can't you can't there can be no reduction of crime while those uh, attitudes and postures continue.
0: 100 percent. And I have pledged uh, on day one of my administration that anybody who violates their oath of office the way that Alvin Bragg has, so any of the 62 DAs around the state, if they violate their oath of office and, and recategorize complete different categories of crime, reclassify complete categories of crime the way that he has, um, I would get them, take them into my office, have a conversation. If they're not amenable to changing their ways, I would give them their pink slip. Mm. Because, it, look, I think in looking at this and looking at the way that Kathy Hochul is currently handling bail reform, currently handling Alvin Bragg, I think she's looking more at the Democratic primary than she is the welfare of New York citizens. And unfortunately, we're going to continue to see crime rise all across our cities, all across the state. This is not just in New York City, Larry. This is also in Rochester, where they recorded the most murders ever in recorded history last year. Buffalo had one of the highest rates in recorded history. The same thing with Albany. So, you know, the constant in all this is bail reform, as well as the defund the police movement that we've seen over the last couple of years.
3: And let me ask you a question. Is it legal for Bragg to just recategorize these crimes?
0: I, I believe it's a complete, you know, I believe he's actually violated his oath of office. Mm -hmm. When you actually read it, and if you look under Article Eight, Section Thirteen B, for anybody who wants to look it up, of the New York State Constitution, uh, the governor can fire. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, he he has a right to a hearing by the legislature, uh, but the governor ultimately can can give him his pink slip. Now, in this legislature, you you never know what that ends up looking like, as we have uh, two super majorities. Who you know, even looking at. Bail reform as there was discussions of, of changing this. And as Adams has, has asked the legislator to look at it, you had Carl Hasty and, and Stuart Cousins who have said, we're not going to touch it. That's where the governor needs to step in and say, I'm going to be the leader of this party. Uh, and, and I need to make sure that my citizens, my 19.5 million New Yorkers uh, are safe. She's choosing not to do that because she wants to lock up the Democratic nomination. Uh, unfortunately, the Democratic Party should not be the party of anti-cops. And of more crime, right? I mean, we should just be having different discussions on uh, on economic policy, but we shouldn't we shouldn't have discussions on uh, whether or not we're going to protect our citizens. You know, Larry. One of the things I used to say about you, and and this is you know this is a little bit off topic, but I I used to say you know there's nobody that can dislike Larry Kudlow. I don't care if you agree with him on economic policy, disagree with him, but if you do disagree with him, you're probably a socialist because (laughs) he, he makes complete sense when it comes to economic policy.
3: Well, I just, uh, I think the voters are going to revolt against all of this. Anyway, Andrew Giuliani, do say hello to your old man. He's a good, he's a good, good fella. And thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take a little bit of break. And after the break, we're going to talk to my pal David McCormick, running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We are wabcradio.com. I make a pitch. You can live stream us, live stream us all across the country, overseas, throughout the solar system. We have a terrific following in the Milky Way. And I guess we're going into syndication across the country, too, which is great fun. Anyway, I bring in my great friend David McCormick, who's running for the Senate in Pennsylvania as a Republican. He's former CEO of Bridgewater Associates Investment Firm served in the uh, George W. Bush administration in the Treasury Department, a Bronze Star recipient for his Gulf War service, and we thank him for his Army service. Uh, David McCormick, good morning. Thanks for coming on.
6: Hey, Larry, great to be with you. How are you?
3: I'm good, buddy, good. You know, we've been talking on the show a lot uh, with the the goings-on in New York City, the tragic killings of these young police detectives about the crime wave, and – you know, how awful it is that politicians, in particular the Democrats, and I blame Biden all the way down. I don't want to be unduly partisan, but frankly, his statements are there. You know, they demonize law enforcement and they demonize cops, David. And I think it's going to be a big election issue. And I um, wanted to get your thoughts on that.
6: Yeah, but Larry, I couldn't agree more. I think it's emblematic of 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 the Democrats and President Biden really taking us our country in the wrong direction in terms of the weakness of the policies that have been put in place and and really a, a wokeness that's undermining some basic values in our uh, in our society and the you know in the law and order category I think you've got a number of contributors but it's certainly this notion of of disrespecting and defunding our law enforcement which makes it hard to recruit hard to you know, get the people on the streets and then a, a, a sense of and, and, and the city of Philadelphia, for example, in my and my great state of Pennsylvania, um, you know, district attorneys who are uh, putting criminals back on the streets. It's also a, uh, a partially driven by the challenges with immigration and the fact that uh, the open borders policy of the Biden administration has contributed to huge uh, crime waves in our sanctuary cities. And we see that also in Philadelphia, but across the Commonwealth. So I think these things are linked, but it's a broader set of policies that are taking us in a very bad direction.
3: You know, that's an interesting point. The, when Biden was here uh, in New York City on Thursday, uh, probably predictably, David, he blamed it on guns and he gives his usual gun control riff. But he had an, a, a little bit of a, a, a new wrinkle on this. That he uh, blamed Georgia because guns are imported. He crosses state borders and the guns are imported into New York City. Now, um, I can't get too excited about that argument, but the one thing he won't talk about is our southern border, where everything is imported. Crime is imported, sex traffic is imported, drugs are imported, and guns are imported. I mean, he will not deal with the border catastrophe that, frankly, is of his own making because he reversed the Trump policies.
6: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And that's a perfect example. If you could have the split screen of the last year or two of the Trump administration, and the first year of the Biden administration, you'd see that the number of illegal immigrants coming into our country has increased fivefold. That is affects Pennsylvania. One of the things that's become clear as I've traveled the state, I told you, Larry, about my Ford F-150. I'm, I'm making my way <laughs> across the Commonwealth. And the thing, the thing that I keep hearing about, over and over again is that we're we're a border state and we're a border state in the sense that the uh that the uh the things that are happening um at our border with the increase in illegal immigration is is showing up in the commonwealth it's showing up in a doubling of fentanyl coming into uh it coming into our state you know i was in cambria county a couple days ago spoke with a woman this happens over and over again it's there's almost no one who hasn't had someone in their family or their close circle of friends who's been affected by fentanyl. It's also showing up in the crime, as I mentioned, across our commonwealth in, in major cities. And so people in Pennsylvania are saying, hey, this secure border is not just a matter of sovereignty for our country. It's a matter of, uh, of crime and drugs and economics. And then the final point I'll make is the one you said, which is if you think about uh, the border in terms of, of human suffering, the The degree of human suffering and exploitation, sex trade, children being uh, exploited, that's happening now on our border, because the number of people that are coming to our border with the, th- the thought they can get in and find a way to citizenship or being part of our country, is um, is making that 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 human catastrophe much more significant than it was uh, a year or two ago, and this is something that. You'll never hear a President Biden or the Democrats talk about, but but from a compassion perspective, it's been a human tragedy.
3: What are Pennsylvanians saying about Joe Biden's uh, race and gender quotas for the Supreme Court? What are, what are you hearing on, on the campaign trail?
6: Well, you know um, the thing that uh, the thing that I hear Pennsylvania saying, and I I think they uh, they they really sort of hold it consistently across the board is that uh, we we're, we're all committed as Americans those of us who have lived the American dream like I know you have Larry to a quality of opportunity uh, but not a quality of, of, of outcome and so by that I mean people want the very best representation they can possibly get on our Supreme Court and they want uh, those who are being considered to be judged on the on the basis of merit and uh, and and to uh, go into this decision-making process with That sort of commitment uh, and narrowing right up front, I think, potentially takes uh, a number of uh, great candidates off the the list of possibilities.
3: Yeah, I mean, we looked at a poll last night on the TV show. Seventy six percent of Americans disagree with these with race and gender quotas for the court. I mean, they want the best people for sure, the most meritorious people. But for Biden to narrow that. And to, I mean, quotas are a bad thing, aren't they? I mean, qu- you couldn't get quotas. You know, the universities are up for grabs on the quota issue. Private business, all this stuff is illegal. It's unconstitutional.
6: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, let me take it as someone who's, you know, led organizations, led businesses. I always believed and uh, and tried to make every effort to ensure that we were recruiting for the very best people across a broad, diverse of candidates. So constantly looking for uh, great women and great minorities to bring into our organization, because I felt like that made our organization stronger in a number of different ways. But it was always critical that those judgments, those choices be made on the basis of merit Mm. and ensuring that you don't lose sight of that meritocracy. That notion of merit is key to creating a, a, a great organization, also key to creating a great country.
3: Yep, that's freedom and democracy and opportunity. So I'm going to ask you. Uh, this is a rare moment for me. I was going to ask you, as candidate, to pledge allegiance to an op-ed piece that Steve Moore and I posted in the Journal this week to make the Trump <laughs> to make the Trump tax cuts permanent.
6: I like that idea, Larry. I haven't read your op-ed, which is rare for me, but. Uh, <laughs> I think <he's>, <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> I think we see I think we see uh, the difference you know the difference and that's why I'm so excited about 2022 and my Senate race but I'm so excited for 2024 because we we can uh, have a conversation about ideas we couldn't see a bigger contrast in terms of ideas in terms of pro-growth economic policies versus you know, the socialist economic agenda that, that's that been been put in place by President Biden and the Democrats. We couldn't see a bigger contrast on the borders, as we just talked about. We couldn't see a bigger contrast uh, in terms of energy policy, which is really critical to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and the starkness of those differences in ideas. We couldn't see a bigger difference in, in terms of education. The starkness of the difference in those ideas um, and the difference between the America First agenda that President Trump put in place and, and implemented could not be starker and that's that's great for us because the outcomes associated with the ideas that were put in place under President Trump versus what's happening now also couldn't be more stark. And so I'm excited about that debate. I hope we can get above the uh the, the sniping and talk about those ideas because I think we have the high ground on ideas, as, as I'm sure your op ed uh, duly noted.
3: I'm gonna take that as a yes yes <laughs> Trump tax cuts should be fair. Look, we can lower tax rates, too. I mean, won't that make us – look, if you have lower taxes and regulations, isn't that a better way to compete with China than a $350 billion spending bill that is now before Congress, which doesn't even use the word China? I mean, haven't we spent enough? And is that really the kind of competitiveness that we want, more and more spending?
6: No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, lowering taxes and, and the regulatory burdens as, uh, as President Trump did with your, with your great support, uh, in the previous administration made all the difference. And it was creating, you know, the, an incredible dynamic economic recovery. And we're seeing the opposite of that effect now. And I think that is at the core of how we must, uh, compete and overcome, uh, the challenge from China. I I do think – and I don't think we disagree on this – but I do do think that there are particular areas where we have grossly underinvested and made really significant strategic errors in terms of our uh, trade relationships and and investment flows with China. And those would be around the areas of, say, semiconductors and key technologies or pharmaceuticals where we've let ourselves become highly dependent on China or, in the case of semiconductors – on Taiwan, which is 90 miles from mainland China. And I think that creates a huge strategic risk. So I do think we're going to need to do smart things that will ensure that private capital uh, matched with a a really attractive regulatory environment allows those key industries, which are so critical to our economy, but also national security to prosper.
3: All right. Sounds good to me, pledging allegiance to the Trump tax cuts. That's really all I ask. I'm a simple person. (laughs) <laughs> I have very few wants. Anyway, I,
6: I, I like it, Larry.
3: David McCormick. Good luck on the campaign trail. Thanks for helping us this morning. Appreciate it. And we're going to bring in David Bernhardt, who was former Secretary of the Interior in the Trump administration, uh, among his other things. Now he's with the America First Policy Institute. Um, David, thank you for coming on. And I just, you know, what it looks to me like reviewing this whole infrastructure debacle is that uh, the NEPA regulations that would have cut down the time for a new project to one or two years, uh, one federal decision, make it, you know, real simple, don't let states and localities get involved, don't let them block good things that can happen, is now being overridden by the Biden administration's regulators particularly in the Environmental Protection Agency, but also, I guess, the Department of Transportation. So is there a bait and switch here? Is these, you know, things like the Endangered Species Act getting in the way of the intentions of what we thought was going to be a, a decent infrastructure bill?
7: Well, um, first off, it's great to be with you, Larry. And I think um, what we see going on right now with this infrastructure bill, is really the poster child for how the bureaucracy can be used to drive the radical Green New Deal uh, forward. And you're absolutely right. There are tools that would allow um, streamlined processes. But um, here, um, the administrator, the deputy administrator of the Federal Highway Administration said, hey, this bill is an opportunity for us to use our oversight authority to evolve the century old relationship with the states, um, and impose, um, through oversight, um, a exercise and exercising our priorities, the policies of the Biden administration. So this, they've taken memo as a guidance document and laid it out and said, you will prioritize funding. You will fund certain things at the top and things like expansion of roads needs to be funded at, at last at the bottom. And then on top of that, they said, we know there are these streamlined processes you can use, but you can't use them for anything um, such as anything that would create a significant change to traffic uh, patterns, which of course would be the point you would be putting in a new uh, road or a, a new uh, bypass is to, you know, de-conflict uh, uh, traffic and so they, they basically tied the hands of the states um, and to drive the Green New Deal agenda and say, put this money for bike paths, put, put this money for walking pass. Uh, do those things that we believe are important before you can get to spend any money. And then when you want to spend money, it's going to be on a slow bus, not a fast bus. That's, so this- that's the way it's working.
3: So this idea of one federal decision, which was the NEPA reform, National Environmental Policy Reform, uh, which you helped to spearhead in the Trump administration, uh, they're knocking that down, basically. It's not one federal decision. It's going to be multi-decisions by regulatory agencies. And also, David, as I understand it, um, at least with the Endangered Species Act – Lots of localities, states, cities, municipalities can stand in the way. So there's no, there is no one federal decision that would streamline these decisions and put the money to work.
7: Well, even that—that's right in general. But here, in particular, what they've said is we're not going to let you use it for certain things. So they've taken it off the table entirely, um, and and that's their objective. Their objective is to say for. For, for areas where you'd have to go outside of the right-of-way, for areas where you would need a new uh, road, we aren't even going to let you use the tool that might be there. And, um, and that's before you get to the other uh, challenges that you're describing with the law. You know, there are challenges with the Endangered Species Act. There's challenges uh, with uh, 404 permits. But, but they're saying before you even get to it, from the moment go, we're not going to let you into this pathway that Congress thought it was creating to streamline some of these. And those are the things that you've worked on. They're also at the same time, Larry, undoing all of the regulatory efforts that you made under the National Environmental Policy Act, under the Endangered Species Act. They're, they're As they're announcing their productivity here, they're limiting it at every step of the way. And that's what's happening here.
3: I mean, uh, stuff is coming out now that, uh, for example, something called unplanned growth uh, is a is a is a negative, is a no no. They won't let that go through. Everything has to be planned. Now, Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, has said a number of times he's not a road guy. He doesn't like cars. He's against fossil fuels. In fact, right. he said he said at one point. Uh, Uh, Highways are racist, which is really quite remarkable. But this idea of unplanned growth, it's, you know, the states that are growing the fastest, David Bernhardt, are the red states. So this is really aimed at the red states, isn't it?
7: It's aimed at saying um, for those red states, you know, you need to prioritize the things that are popular in other states, the bike paths, the walkways. We need you to spend the money on those things first. Before you can even get to that new road you need or that new off ramp outside of the or a new lane for cars, you're exactly right. This is targeted them. And, you know, look, when you talk about planning, you know, this bill, beyond the money for roads and bridges, has a massive amount of money for charging stations. Um, and I, I just can't imagine Uh, If we were to go back 100 years as gas stations were emerging and the federal government had planned where every gas station would be, I can only imagine how great that outcome for the American (laughs) people would be um, compared to saying let's let's let entrepreneurs uh, decide where there might be a great place to have a gas station.
3: But did the oil companies
7: build their own gas stations? Yeah, that's the shocking thing. It didn't take a dollar of government revenue to, uh, to figure out what corner would be the best corner to put one on. And, um, you know, we just need to get back to a little bit of common sense. And, you know, you and the president tried to bring, um, common sense to the regulatory, uh, world, common sense to the tax world. And, and that was, that was resulting in better outcomes for the American people. And we need to recognize that we don't need to do a lot of planning. What we need to do is give American people the choice and let them pick what technologies they want, what, what modes of operation they want. Give the money to the states and let them figure out what's the best road program for their states. Maybe it is all bike paths in some areas, but, but where I'm from in western Colorado, that wouldn't work uh, too well. And so they should just turn that money over and let it be put for the best.
3: All right. David Bernhardt, America First Policy Institute. Thank you, folks. We're going to take a break. And then on the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work in a very tricky environment. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back.
6: Greg Kelly here from Monetary Gold. The financial fallout from COVID is about to hit home. To pay for mountains in federal aid, the government has printed massive amounts of money. That means soaring inflation and a shrinking portfolio. Get a free copy of The Dollar's Last Stand and see if you qualify to trade dollars for gold with a $5,000 credit. Call 1-888-993-9332. Call 1-888-993-9332 to see if you qualify for a gold credit.
2: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
3: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to do some stock market work. The markets were up this week. Dow was up 364 points. The NASDAQ up 327. The S&P 500 up 69 Energy was the leader. Just looking at some of my stock sheets here. West Texas crude oil, $92.31. That is a big number. Here we go again. And it was up six bucks. Brent crude, $93. So the dollar itself a little softer, down two percentage points. And the bonds, big I guess big news bond was up fourteen basis points on the stronger than expected jobs report, so the ten years at one ninety one. And I think there's some very tricky stuff here. So we're gonna call in we're gonna call in our rescue team to give us fabulous investment advice. Nancy Tengler is the CEO and chief investment officer of laffer Tengler Investments, which has a five star morning star rating. Good for her. And Michael Zanian, assisting Managing Editor of Forbes Media, co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. And as always, I have to ask Michael Zanian some sports stuff because I'm a sports nut. Michael Zanian, is there going to be a Major League Baseball strike? What's happening?
4: Well, I think the lockout probably is going to result in a lot of the preseason being uh, canceled, not happening. Hmm. Uh, and I... Major League Baseball requested an arbitrator, a mediator, to come in, and uh, the players' union rejected that. Basically, what the sticking points are, Larry, is the players' union wants a shorter tenure for a player to be a free agent. Currently, after the fifth season, they want it to probably come down to after the third, and the same thing for arbitration, which is now after the third season. They want it sooner. And their gripe is that, you know, you're getting a lot of young, really good players on the cheap. Uh, I think the, uh, revenue sharing that the players union wanted, they wanted more revenue sharing from the richer teams, your team, the Yankees, Red Sox, a couple other high revenue teams. They want, I think that's dead. And they wanted the tax, which is basically for payrolls that are over about 213 14 million dollars hmm. the players union wants that raised to over 300 uh million and the play, the owners have said no 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 so i think that that might get nudged up a little bit but uh i think the most the biggest thing is the tenure in terms of free agency and arbitration so uh you know they always say no one really moves until paychecks start to get missed. So <laughs> I, I suspect maybe mid-March towards late March, we'll, we'll probably get a resolution. At least I'm hoping so.
3: Boy, I hope so. What you, I mean, If we don't have baseball, I'm just going to go crazy. i <laughs> dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> and Nancy Tengler, didn't you tell us at one point uh, your son played Navy baseball?
8: Naval, really? Academ-
3: Naval Academy baseball?
8: He did indeed, yep, and uh, one of our uh, portfolio managers played with him. They had wow. a pretty decent team. A couple guys got um, recruited and, or drafted, but then they changed the rules, and um, the military did, and they weren't allowed to play. So,
3: Well, listen, I, you know, baseball season, I come home at night, and I got to watch a few innings at least of the Yankees. Otherwise, you know, I get all stressed out.
4: <laughs> no. And this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a great full season, full fans, you know, uh, coming off of these last couple of uh, COVID-impacted years. So I think, yeah, all of us baseball fans were really looking forward to it. You know, the one thing I will say, you know, it's not like thirty, forty years ago where players really needed spring training to get in shape. I mean, these guys, you know, they work out all year long; they're into the right nutrition. So you know, I, I don't think they need a lot of spring training. So uh, hopefully, if they do come back in the absence of a lot of spring training, we won't see injuries. Well, we if need the- spring
8: training here in Arizona. Are you telling? Is it canceled?
4: Yeah, they they can't be. Uh, that's the uh, cactus league out there in Arizona, yeah. and uh, the grapefruit leagues in Florida, and yeah. So uh, they cannot play under uh, the auspices of Major League Baseball yeah. until no. the lockout ends. Sorry to say, Nancy.
8: Well, I'm I, stressed out now, Larry. And Mike.
4: I, no, I'm
3: telling you, the stress factor of no baseball would be terrible for the stock market. Terrible. <laughs> you get all these people go go crazy we already have enough, so we don't need any more. Well, I know. So, uh, Nancy Tangler, we had a blowout jobs number. Didn't have a big market impact. Well, the NASDAQ was up 200-plus yesterday, but blowout uh, jobs number. And I, I'm calling it an inflationary boom, basically. And I, I uh, we got to figure out how to do this. I had the great Art Laffer on at the very beginning of the show. And, you know, he's quite worried about this whole story, doesn't think it's going to end well, doesn't think there's a whole lot we can do. The Fed's got to take some actions to stop inflation. So anyway, Nancy Tangley, where are you? What's your outlook?
8: Yeah, it it was a great number. Um, I think... Greg Gip had a piece in the Wall Street Journal today that said the pro, the participation rate was skewed upward by population estimates, whatever that means. And so, had that been applied in December, the participation rate would have been constant. So that that's a little disappointing because we'd like to see um, more participation. Clearly, um, I think the good news for me was that productivity, which is a you know inherently volatile number, but it popped pretty strong. Um, and just as high prices are the cure for high prices, you know, when wages go up, productivity improves because employers like myself, we have to find other solutions. So I, I think the productivity, um, lower unit labor costs will keep margins intact for some period of time. But we've talked about this many times, Larry, the Fed's way behind. And uh, this last press conference, you know, when the statement came out, the market rallied. I was on the air. I was on Fox Business, uh, and the r- market rallied dramatically. And then he started talking and it deteriorated dramatically because he basically said, uh, we don't know what we're going to do when, despite the fact that the previous minutes had showed clearly that they talked about, um, shrinking the balance sheet. They talked about rate hikes. So I think the market is a little jittery, clearly, as a result of the leadership. And then you've got all these progressive nominees that are coming in the mix. And, uh, I think, I think the Fed is going to continually be a source of volatility for the market, and, and that's a concern. But the last thing I'll say is that earnings growth in the fourth, fourth quarter was, has been excellent for the most part. I mean, there have been spots of weakness, but guidance has been really good, and margins have held up very nicely. So the, you have that offsetting element, which leads me to say this is the most complex investing environment in my career yeah, <laughs> in almost 40 years.
3: Don't you think, Mike O'Zanian, that slavery reparations gives you confidence for a new Fed nominee? <laughs> Lisa well, Cook. I, that's uh... that's her big thing. Slavery reparations. And also she feels this is this is a this is a racist country and it was committing genocide during the Trump years. I mean she has I mean I read John Cochran, you know, the Grumpy Economist. He's a brilliant guy, University of Chicago, he's been at Hoover for years. And he just says she's she's published a lot down through the years, she teaches at Michigan State, but never publishing on anything to do with monetary policy.
4: And she's the Fed nominee.
3: I mean, just so saying, my, just saying, I don't know, whatever.
4: My, my Fed hero of all time is Paul Volcker, and I read yep. a lot of his stuff and about him, and I don't remember any of that being in his bio. I no. may have missed it, <laughs> but I... No. But I, I, I I don't remember seeing any of that. Um, I, I, you know, I think Nancy is spot on uh, in terms of profits and profit margins. Um, And, you know, we just saw that this past week, right, how the profits are really causing the market to gyrate. The Facebook missed by a big margin. And then the Amazon reporting great profits. The market went back up. A very wise man that has taught me a lot once said profits are the mother's milk of the stock market. Yeah, and, yep, and I, and yep, yep, I think yep. that holds my big concern is twofold. I, I believe that inflation is worse than the numbers are suggesting. And I believe the fed through, you know, all the crazy things it's been doing, like buying massive amounts of tips, buying repos, I think has, made it very difficult to read the traditional credit market signals you know but uh, i looked through dow when dow reported its fourth quarter earnings and it was really interesting dow said that its costs rose 39 percent in the fourth quarter hmm. and and why volume fell four percent and i you know i think dow is a good thing to look at because they make you know so many different products that go into so many different things. I mean, everybody owns something that Dow makes something to build. So I, I just think inflation's a lot worse than uh, at least certainly than the Fed does. I think they're way, way, way behind the curve. And I think it's kind of, you know, the market has been looking for a rate increase. You know, if you look at the S&P the multiples, forward PE ratios, whether it be for the large cap, the mid cap, or the small cap, all peaked around the same time, around the first quarter of 2020. They all went for, uh, The large cap went from 23 to 19, mid cap 23 to 14, and the small caps really gotten hammered from 27 to 13. Hmm. So it's clearly the denominator, the profits, that have uh, kept this stock market right. uh, in positive territory.
3: All right, let's take a quick break. And we'll come back. We've got uh, Nancy Tengler and Mike Ozanian, two of the best of the best. Janet Yellen says the inflation rate is going to be 2% by the end of the year. I don't know what she's smoking, but it isn't going to be that easy. And interest rates are going up. We'll take a short break. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around, folks. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're talking stocks. Nancy Tengler, CEO and chief investment officer, uh, officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. And Michael Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Um, Nancy, we got um, $91 oil. We have, generally speaking, depending on how you measure it, a 6 to 7% inflation rate. And we had a pretty big pop in the 10-year this week, uh, 14 basis points up to 191, so it's approaching 2%. How does that all figure? I mean, it just looks to me like there's more inflation and more interest rate hikes. Uh, oil prices, will figure into that, but, of course, the Fed is responsible. Is that going to cut into multiples, and is that going to be a problem for stocks? Yeah.
8: Well, I think it already has cut into multiples, Larry. I. I think the market is doing some of the Fed's work by, you know, the bond market, um, declining and the yields going up and stocks bouncing around. The multiples now, if you back out the magnificent aid, as Ed Yard Denny calls them, the, the, multiple on the S&P, the remaining 492 stocks is about 16, 17 on average. Um, in a negative real rate environment, cause we're still in a negative real rate environment. Um, that, that, that seems somewhat reasonable to me. But what we've been focused on because, there are a lot of pressures, and that's a constant theme in the earnings calls that we've been sitting on. We've been focused on companies that um, have higher levels of productivity via earnings and revenues per employee. And the two top sectors are technology, which does not surprise anyone, but but energy. And so we have, uh, over the previous months, been adding to our energy exposure, and in January we added to our technology exposure. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the history shows that uh, that Technology stocks have actually done well, extremely well, during rising interest rate and inflationary environment. And one of the CEOs uh, that reported last week, ServiceNow's CEO, came out and said, "We have no, um, we're not punished by rising interest rates. They generated 26% subscription growth last year. They're going to again this year, and and their margins expanded. Microsoft had a blowout number. So did Google. So did Amazon. And the common theme was cloud." And that's been an area of focus for us, cloud, cybersecurity, and SEMI. So I think if you pick your places and and look around for some of the cyclicals like UPS, which raised their dividends 49%, uh, great CEO, and Carol Tomei, if you look for companies that have pricing power, strong balance sheets, and strong free cash flow, good management help, um, I think you will mitigate your volatility, and by the end of the year, you'll be happy you own those stocks. But I, we, we have a hedge on for our, our clients as well because you don't know, right? So we want to have protection.
3: I did not shed any tears for Facebook.
8: Me neither.
3: <laughs> Just saying. I mean, I, you know, I'm a capitalist. I want everyone to succeed, but maybe not Zuckerberg. <laughs> I hate to say it. It's, it's an we were a reluctant
8: comment. shareholder when we held the stock. Oh, God.
3: Anyway, Mike uh oil prices up. Dollar was pretty sloppy this week. What do you think about that stuff?
4: I think I look at gold in, almost in tandem with the dollar, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, gold is, is kind of an interesting play right now, too, because really gold hasn't done that well since, I don't know, the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. So it's lower than it was then. I I would own a little gold. Um, I think, you know, it might an interesting dollar play right now would be maybe the Australian dollar uh, because they make a lot of commodities. uh, And, uh, you know, I Mm. think given what's happening to the prices of commodities, I think that's an interesting play. I, I, on top of inflation, I'm, I'm also very concerned with the inventory buildup. I know there are those who believe that's a positive because that will lead to more spending in subsequent quarter. I do not believe that. I, I look at Peloton as sort of a, uh, you know, the poster child for what can happen with the buildup in inventory. They got crushed a couple of weeks ago because of that. Um, I'm I'm going to hedge a little bit like Nancy, too. I'm going to go with uh, an ETF. The ticker symbol is DOG. It shorts the Dow. Uh, I, think, I think the Dow is, is, is a smart short. On the other hand, you know, uh, being a cheap guy myself, when things get really, really cheap, I got to buy. So on the long side, I'm going to go with a Vanguard ETF. It's small caps. Small caps have gotten hammered. Uh, and the ticker symbol is VBR, and they're both very, very cheap, low expenses.
3: What about the inflation break evens?
4: I don't know if like, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I just think the credit markets, and I, can you can you trust that with the Fed buying massive amounts of tips? I, I don't know. I think it, I think there's a total. Uh, I don't know. Maybe manipulation is the wrong, wrong word there, but I, I don't know that. I, I like. I just want to look at what these companies are reporting in their annual reports. And from mm-hmm. what I'm reading, the inflation numbers that they're talking about, and when when I go shopping and when I'm looking to buy food, it's uh, it, it's giving very strong signals. You know, the, uh, Janet Yellen saying inflation is going to be 2%. <laughs> Did she finish the sentence with 2% a week? Or, you know, <laughs> I do know. I, mean, I, mean, I, 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 just, I don't see that. All right. Well, it's tricky
3: business. We'll agree on that. It's very tricky business. Nancy Tangler, thank you very, very much. Mike Ozanian, we need baseball. We just need baseball. Folks, we're going to take a short break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk money and politics with Steve Moore and Liz Peak. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, kids. Great pleasure to have you. Thank you. So we all know we all know that we have to pledge allegiance to um, making the Trump tax cuts permanent. We know that <laughs> <laughs> we laid the law down, and actually, it's um, everybody I've talked to agrees. Now I don't talk to that they many people. They mentioned
9: that they mentioned our piece
3: today on Fox News this morning. Oh, good. Uh, that's good. Yeah. But nice. well, I'm, I. I want viral. to talk. <laughs> it's gone viral. Yeah, well, that's good. We need something. We need something. Uh, at least we don't have the Fed- you know, Federal Reserve nominees uh, who want slavery reparations. I mean, come on. We've we got to have some positive, constructive things going on here in the world. But um, here's a tough story. I want to tackle this. Um, Pence calls Trump wrong in claiming vice president could overturn the election results. He said that to a Federalist Society meeting in Florida. President Trump is wrong. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. He went on to say the Constitution gives the vice president no authority to reject or return uh, electoral votes. And he says, um, I have no right to change the outcome of our election, and Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 20. 20- 24. And he argues that we should be uh, looking ahead. We should be looking ahead and going beyond that. And um, President Trump countered, uh, former President Trump countered uh, by basically disagreeing. He says, that's why the Democrats and rhinos are working feverishly together to change the very law that Mike Pence and his unwitting advisors used on January 6th to say he had no choice. If there is fraud or large-scale irregularities, it would have been appropriate to send those votes back to the <laughs> legislatures to figure it out. The Dems and Rhinos want to take that right away. A great opportunity lost, uh, but not forever. In the meantime, our country is going to hell. All right. Uh, I'm going to let Liz Peak start this, okay? I'm going to let Liz Peek start this. Okay? <laughs> Peek start this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Go ahead, Liz. By the way, Mark Simone asked me at dinner Thursday night. We had our dinner with John Katzman. He says, when's Liz P. coming back? When's Liz P. coming back?
10: That's cute. I said Uh, You know, I I think this uh, obviously is a statement by Mike Pence to try and divorce himself from from President Trump, and from 1-6. I think anyone running in 2024, as clearly Mike Pence hopes to do, uh, will have to not be associated with the uh, protests, riots, whatever you want to call them. I don't call it an insurrection on January 6th. Uh, And, you know, I think he had to do this for his own career. I don't personally think that Mike Pence is going to be a very strong candidate Uh, in 2024. But, you know, obviously the seasons change and we will see. Uh, I'm sad, really sad, Larry, uh, that President Trump can't let go of the 2020 election. I think this is a mistake for him, for his legacy, for the people who believe fervently in his policies, as I do, and who want his uh, policy regimen to go forward unblemished by this continuing running sore of the 2020 election he needs i wish he would come forward and say i believe there were irregularities it is something that we have to put behind us uh, and fight for the future because that is what we all should be looking at now
3: steve moore you tried to talk him out of this didn't you didn't you tell me that you saw him at mar-a-lago at dinner and you said that we should be talking about economics But he wanted to talk still about the 2020 election. Steve, are you there? Sorry, I was muted. Um,
9: First of all, a couple of quick things on this. One is Liz knocked it out of the park. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is bad for the party. It's bad for Trump. It's bad for everybody that that Trump can't seem to get past. And and look, there are clearly irregularities. I do believe if we had a conventional election – In 2020, there is no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump would have been the winner. Now, that being said, I got to say, two of my favorite people in American politics, and I've been in this game a long time, are Donald Trump and Mike Pence. I love them both. And I hate, 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 Larry, that these two are feuding. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it saddens me. Another point uh, Mike Pence is no rhino. (laughs) I've known the guy. For, you know, a long, long, long time, he's been a hero of the conservative revolution. So um, let's get past this. I mean, come on. And uh, I, I think they were a great team. You were there, Larry. I mean, don't you agree with me? That was a great team of yes. of, uh, of Trump and, and Pence. And Pence yes. was
10: a very, very loyal vice president. Yeah. Yes, That's he was. The thing. That's the yes, thing. His, his entire brand, to, to most people, I mm-hmm. think, who watch these things casually or with some interest is his loyalty to Donald Trump. So this is really a sad moment, but I think probably Pence had to do it. Uh, And really, I wish Donald Trump would just ignore it and let this die.
3: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, look, I think, Lizzie, you made a great point. It's a very you really did. Your opening statement was terrific. Um, I'm very loyal to Donald Trump and will remain so. I'm also very loyal to Mike Pence. I agree with Steve uh, those two, uh, those two guys are great political figures. Mike Pence is not a rhino. No, you just cannot. You know, I'll tell you, let's see. Sometime around 2005 or 2006, Steve, the old Human Events newspaper uh, nominated Pence to be the conservative man of the year. And Human yeah. Events was a damn conservative newspaper. Yeah. And I was the guy. They asked me to write the interview. That's how I got to know Pence, actually. Yep. And we talked yep. uh, for hours about it, and then I wrote it up. Um, and they did, you know, to Liz's point, their achievements, their policies uh, were, you know, as good as anything we've seen in right. 40 years, since the Reagan days. So we, we that's that's the key point. We want to go forward with the policies and make the Trump tax cuts permanent, deregulation, energy independence, you know, be competitive around the world, um, have a secure strong borders. defense,
10: secure borders,
3: secure borders. That's correct. I mean, those are the things we need to really hammer away. Yeah. At. I understand why Mike said it, and I respect him for saying it. I, I think he had to. It's been festering for a while. Exactly. Um, but, but let's go back to the policies, because Biden is trying to reverse all the policies. That's the and- thing.
10: And Larry, I think that is what's so crushing is that the disaster of the Biden White House revolves around a single focus of Joe Biden, which is to overturn everything Donald Trump did, whether it made sense or not. Open up the border, you know, go back to the Iran deal, all this stuff that isn't working won't work and is completely wrong-headed is only to spite Donald Trump. But what we have is a failing White House. So everything that I mean, Donald Trump's star should be rising right now, and instead, everybody is focused on this bullying, hectoring, uh, intransigence about the the overturning of the 2020 election. And I just really find this a tragedy.
3: By the way, Steve, uh, I don't know if you saw this. It came out last night. Um, Biden is removing. The sanctions on Iran yeah. to make a deal with Iran, to make a nuclear deal. All they do is lie, cheat and steal. That's all they'll ever do. So yeah. talk talk about, you know, reversing uh, Trump policies. And, of course, uh, let's go oil. We were just talking about this in yeah. the stock market segment. Oil is now back to $91 a barrel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really? How did that happen?
9: So the, uh, of all the issues that uh, Biden is wrong on and the left is wrong on, I think their war on American energy is, is uh, you know, no very few Americans understand the logic of this. But when you have $90 a barrel uh, oil, uh, we should be producing as much of it here at home as we can. I mean, just as a matter of national security and as a matter of economic security and jobs. I mean, it, I don't really understand this. Is there anybody who really believes, that we can power a $23 trillion economy with windmills. I mean, really, that is the most absurd concept. I mean, uh, you would grind the American economy to a halt. Now, something really important happened this week that's not getting enough attention. I mentioned a few weeks ago on your show that it might happen. It now has. Europe has now basically classified natural gas and Mm -hmm. nuclear power as green energy. And they are green energy. They are. I mean nuclear power emits no greenhouse gases and natural gas is the reason that the countries like the United States have dramatically reduced our carbon emissions. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. That now means, Larry, that the United States government is to the left of the Europeans on climate change. Yeah.
10: It's crazy. Yeah, and we're the ones we're the ones who have untold exactly. quantities of cheap exactly. natural gas that, that Democrat governors are refusing To accept. Larry, I think on your show you had a guy from the Manhattan Institute, I believe, who did a study on the need for rare earths and rare minerals to fund, to to, uh, produce, the the need for those to actually produce the green energy that everybody wants to see, right? And it's completely impossible. There Mm -hmm. is no infrastructure available for this renewable revolution, which just makes the whole thing. It's all smoke and mirrors and political posturing. It doesn't have anything to do with serious policymaking, which is so offensive. I mean, they're they're going to trash our energy industry and put on the table uh, a renewable compact, a renewable promise that does not exist and can't exist. So how lame is that?
3: Mark, his name is Mark Mills. He's a very smart guy from Manhattan Institute. And he was saying... If you want all renewables, you are going to have to go and dig up commodities, the likes of which we have never done, and the cost of that will rise exponentially. And also, the uh, the irony is the greenies, first of all, they won't let us dig. They won't let us mine. But even if we did mine, the cost of building a new renewable uh, infrastructure – for which they have no advanced planning whatsoever, but that cost would be enormous. I mean ginormous. And, of course, yeah. that would be passed along in terms of higher prices and more inflation. In other words, there's no infrastructure alternative, no planning, no nothing out there. It's like a step into the unknown. I mean, so that, Larry, now that's that's what we should yeah. be talking about.
9: Let me mention one other thing. You know, we had a little item in our, our uh, prosperity hotline the other day. And it just it came from all places, the New York Times. And they had a map yes. of the United states today versus what the, map, what the map would look like in, I think it was 2050, when we have all these windmills and solar panels. And what, what it shows, folks, is you would have to just industrialize the entire landscape of America with windmills. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you fly in right now to Palm Beach, uh, I mean, Palm Springs, and it's the most yeah. gorgeous, beautiful mountains. And all you see on the mountains is windmills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so how is this green? Yeah. How are we going to get enough steel and cement and all this other stuff to build all these windmills without conventional fossil fuels? It doesn't make any sense.
3: You know, we got to take a break, but I would just say this: when this subject came up, in the Oval Trump would talk about how the windmills kill the birds, yeah, and he, it's true, and he, he didn't, he didn't understand how the left, you know, which, which, which swears that the Endangered Species Act prevents any building, and these windmills will kill all the birds. And that was his response. Anyway, I've got to take a quick break. We're talking to Steve Moore and Liz Peake, And When we come back, we'll have much more. I'm Cudlow. Please stay with us. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. We are here talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, and Steve Moore of... Um, FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Now, kids, there's a gray headline, Newsmax headline. Could CNN be nearing an end of its lean to the left after Zucker exit? All right, this is great, but it's cool. CNN could be nearing the end of its left-leaning tilt as billionaire media mogul and Donald Trump donor John Malone wants the network restored to impartiality after Jeff Zucker's departure. According to the Daily Mail, Malone, the CEO of Liberty Media, significant shareholder in Discovery, whose acquisition of CNN parent company, Warner Media, is expected to pass regulatory approval in May. He pressed for Zucker to be fired, uh, making it known that corporate procedures had to be followed. So Malone, who was a big Trump guy, is taking over CNN. All right. Now, he doesn't actually take it over. But he's a major shareholder in Discovery, and he'll have a lot to say about it. So, what do you think, Liz? CNN going to change? They're now <laughs> going to have to report up through a a a Trump donor. That's like the biggest nightmare CNN will
6: ever face.
10: I think it's unlikely that there's going to be a huge pivot, and here's why: the entire uh, employment of CNN is basically of one political stripe. They have one point of view. You would have to basically fire the entire network (laughs) staff and start all over again. So I don't think they're going to do that. I mean, look, is is it a great idea? Wouldn't it be a great idea just to have one uh, network out there who really is, that really is impartial, I just don't, I wonder actually if it can happen in this day and age. I think people are just too uh, too embedded in their own uh, spheres, and I, I don't know that that could happen, really.
3: Steve Moore, didn't you used to do gigs on CNN?
9: I did. In fact, uh, <laughs> and Liz is right. I mean, literally, I would be there in the green room uh, you know, before I'd go on the show. So was literally five left you know, hardcore leftists and me, I was kind of the, the skunk at the garden party. And uh so it was incredibly you know, it was it it became the anti Trump network. And by the way, their ratings went went up. You know, I, I I told my liberal friends, I said, When Trump is gone, your ratings are gonna go <laughs> into the sewer. And that's exactly what has happened? So I wonder if they they're hoping that, that Donald Trump makes uh, the comeback to the White House. Uh, I'll say this about CNN: I, I think Ted Turner was a genius. Yeah. Uh, he created when was that thirty forty? I don't even remember a long time. 1980, ago created, 1980. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the great. You know, it was a news network. It was a news network, which is what yeah. America needed, and it wasn't politically. You know, might have. You know. Uh, Uh, been a little bit swerved a little bit to the left but it was it was if you wanted to know what was going on in the world you'd turn on cnn and uh, it's now become do you does anybody tune into cnn for the news anymore i mean it's not it's just it's really it's heartbreaking that it has gone down so much and by the way i gotta tell you one quick funny story when I, i was working at cnn you know Donald Trump loves to watch TV, as you know, and so he would watch me and and he'd, you know, he'd get me. Why did you say this? Why would you say that? Well, if I say only good things about you, Mr. President, you know, <laughs> they're, they're never gonna, you know, they're just gonna think I'm a. But what was funny is he he people don't know this, but do you know who the executive producer was for um for his uh, TV show, the uh, The Apprentice?
10: No. Yes. Jeff Zucker. I was just going to say Jeff Zucker. Oh, that Donald right, Donald right. right. Like, wow. Sure, sure, oh, sure. Really, absolutely, really absolutely.
9: I would go, see, when I'd meet with uh, Donald Trump, he'd go, that blankety-blank Jeff Zucker, I made Jeff Sucker. And then mm. I'd go see Jeff Sucker and he'd say, that blankety-blank Donald Trump, <laughs> I made Donald Trump.
3: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, CNN started business television, Lou Dobbs. Yes. Lou, yeah. you know, the old Moneyline, and I was on her a million times in the yeah. 80s. I was yeah. a CNN Washington correspondent for Moneyline when I left the Reagan administration. I did it for a year or two. Stu Varney and I used to go on at 6.30 a.m., not my best moment, 6.30 a.m. Monday mornings. Yeah. I'd go on with Stu Varney for about 15 minutes or so. Oh, yeah, I did it for a year, year and a half And Lou Lou Dobbs wouldn't pay me, but he'd send me a box of cigars every now and
9: then. (laughs) By
7: the
3: way, one other other quick thing about
9: CNN that I think is is kind of interesting. They spent probably a year and a half, every single night, for a year and a half, they talked about nothing else but the Russia collusion story. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that was the biggest lie and sham story maybe in the history of American politics. Did they ever did they ever apologize to Donald Trump for that or no. or
10: take it back? Not at all. Right.
3: Right. Even yeah. after. Right. It's all been proven to be a complete hoax. I don't know. Um, I don't know John Malone. Well, I have met him. Uh, he's a very strong guy. It's an interesting story uh, mm-hmm. because you're right, Liz, they'd have they'd have to fire everybody. Uh, which they're not going to do. But they could start, you know, they could start firing some. I mean, they could start at some of the more visible ones. I mean, look, uh, they got rid of Chris Cuomo. They got rid of Chris Cuomo. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some changes. So, I don't know. We'll see. I don't well, really. At care. least they
10: could they could start to hire a couple of right-leaning right leaning hosts and at least have a diversity of opinion, which yeah. there is not at all of uh, on. I mean, I think Fox really deserves more credit than it gets for having people on the right yeah. and the left, right. and we all know who they are. Uh, and some of them are newscasters, but you, there's always some element of which stories you want to present and everything. But I think they do a pretty good job. I, I do of having opinions across the board.
9: Yeah, no, they but, do. Uh, and then it's uh, actually exactly. interject something. I do know John Malone. Uh, yeah. John Malone was on the board of the Cato Institute, a libertarian. Yeah. Yeah. And a great guy. I mean, a brilliant, brilliant businessman. Incredible. And uh, he is anti-big government. He's yes. a free market guy.
2: Yes. And
9: uh, so he's quite impressive. And, and I think he has it in him to turn around CNN. I mean, he's basically said, hey, let's make it a news <laughs> news network again.
10: Shocking yep. idea.
3: Well, MSNBC is also poisonous. I don't see any changes coming there. Poisonous, honestly. I used to do – when I was with CNBC, and I'd go on MSNBC, some of their programs, and you'd have two anchors and another guest and me – and it would be like three people just yelling at me. That's all they would do. They would yell at me. I, mean, I would. I'd be, a lot of times I'd be on the set, and I'd just have to sit there because I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Larry, you can
10: hold your own in those circumstances, I'm pretty sure.
3: I don't know. It was So I, I don't want to leave MSNBC out uh, of this uh, conversation. Anyway, kids, you're both fabulous. Liz Peake, welcome back. Steve Moore, as always. Thanks, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is
4: The Larry Kudlow Show. We will be back next weekend.